Hey, this is Tiffany Aurora. Welcome back to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I hope that you'll take a second to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribing to the show is quick, it's easy, and it's completely free. And that's one of the best ways that you can support this podcast. My guest today is Emma Snyder, who is an entrepreneur here in the Baltimore City area, where she owns two independent bookstores, the Ivy Bookshop and Bird in Hand Bookstore and Cafe. This was a fun conversation. I learned a lot. I know you will too. Please enjoy. Delighted to introduce you to today's guest. Emma Snyder is the owner of the Ivy Bookshop and Bird in Hand Bookstore and Cafe in Baltimore City. A lover of books and education and community, Emma didn't start out planning to become an entrepreneur. But as she mentions in our conversation, entrepreneurship ended up being the thing she didn't know she had always wanted. She loves the creativity of owning and operating her own business, and it shows because she's done such an incredible job with her two bookstores in Baltimore. In this conversation, we talked about the importance of learning to ask for help, how entrepreneurship can ground you within your own community, the brilliance of a really good architectural design, and so much more. You're in for a treat. Enjoy this conversation with Emma Snyder. So I'm very excited to welcome Emma Snyder to the Entrepreneurs and Artists podcast. Emma, welcome. Um, thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. So you are the owner of the Ivy Bookshop that's here in Baltimore City, which is also where I'm located. And I was wondering if we could start off by you taking us back to one of your first memories of books and reading, however far back you want to go, but like one of the first ones that stands out to you, because I'm curious if you could paint a picture for us of what was that moment, if you happen to remember the book that was involved, I'd love to hear about that and what were sort of like the emotions that were a part of that experience for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is such a great question that I, I think about occasionally, but not that often. So among things, thank you for sending me back down memory lane. I, I feel like I actually have two very early sort of childhood memories in terms of my relationships with books. Unsurprisingly, neither, both of them involve one of my parents and both of them involve being read to at night, right before I went to sleep. And they're very different books. One was my father had this old book called Number Stories from Long Ago that I remember vividly him reading to me. We lived in a little row house um, in Woodbury and uh, him curled up next to me and reading me these this book that was stories about the creation of number systems, which doesn't sound like it was riveting huh. to like a four year, I would have been about four years old, probably four or five. And I just found it magical. And it was about children kind of learning and developing number systems as long ago as sort of, you know, kind of before common era, thousands of years ago, counting in sort of the, you know, Mesopotamia and, and going through history. And 
he would read one in the evening and then we would talk about it. And it was, my parents had split up when I was small and, you know, I went back and forth between their houses. And as the second story will tell, I think that there was just something special. I was the third kid. So it was just like that moment of connection with this person I adored uh, and didn't get that much private time with, um, with books as this connective tissue. And then mm-hmm. feeling like I got to kind of talk about ideas with my dad, um, yeah. which is certainly a through line of my life uh, in terms of my relationship with books and what I love about them, what I think is extraordinary about them. And and, the, and this, the parallel story is that I also remember having a very similar experience with my mother. And we lived in a, a little, in a house in Radnor Winston, kind of right in the heart of the city. And again, in the evening, her reading me the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and so oh, yeah. Little House in the Big Woods. And I was just enthralled. And what I specifically remember is one night she would read me a chapter every night. And one night I convinced her to read me a second chapter. <gasps> and then after that, I tried again. And having this like, she was like, I, I shouldn't have like, I've incentivized the wrong thing. Never again will you get two <laughs> chapters. But that insatiable <laughs> desire to know where the story went. And this deep sense of wonder at history and at family and about an event, like the specificity of the world that Laura Ingalls Wilder created in those books, um, which now we read somewhat differently in later life. And I was just having a conversation with a, a sales rep from a publisher about that and about Laura Ingalls Wilder particularly, but that isn't what was there when I was four years yeah. old. I was reading me those books and what I felt, felt was wonder and I felt connection um, and I felt I felt like I was enveloped in this kind of shared experience with someone I loved. I think that those are just sort of the origin stories of how I developed a relationship with books. I love that. I mean, wonder and connection are two of the best emotions. And I think, I think that's very common amongst people who read a lot. But, but I love that story too, because I mean, what a great way to bond with your parents and what a great way for parents to bond with their kids too. It's something yeah. that's still available to us. We can still find those books. And and I love also that they were such different, different books, books and yet yeah. you still had that same connection experience. That's so cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's, um, and it does illustrate differences in my parents and also similarities of sort of the intensity of their relationships with books but also the breadth of childhood curiosity that can be carried on through life and that I think books can help us do, which is you don't have to be one kind of, and that's one of the things I really love about running bookstores is um, when people ask me like what kinds of books I read, the answer is like, I read every, I don't know, I read whatever seems interesting to me. And I think that when I look back, I can see that my parents modeled that. um, And I appreciate that. So that leads me to a question about um, about your bookstores and you have, you own the Ivy Bookshop, you you own Bird in Hand as well? Is that I correct? also own Bird in Hand, Coffee and Books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had another career prior to purchasing these bookstores and running these bookstores. And so I'm really curious, what drew you to choosing bookstores as your entrepreneurial pursuit? And maybe you have other ones as well, but I'm curious about that. Um, I don't, as far as I know, though. Okay. <laughs> um, never say never, I suppose, though. Um, sure. Yeah, I, books were, books have been a through line of my life and definitely are a through line of my professional life. My first job out of college was teaching elementary school. And then actually I went abroad and I worked briefly for a magazine in Beijing uh, and then did some teaching there and also some research. And that was kind of in my 20s, I taught and I wrote and I did research, essentially. And that eventually led me in my late 20s to getting a job running an education program called Writers in Schools for the Penn Faulkner Foundation, which is a literary nonprofit in Washington, D.C. And it 
was an amazing job. I was like, how does this job exist in the world? My job was actually to kind of match working contemporary writers with teachers and build curricular resources and then donate class sets of books so students could read books and then meet with the author as a capstone experience at the end of these kind of English units or in book clubs or in kind of extracurricular activities. And I was brought in to run that program, but also to sort of expand it and build it and kind of help figure out sort of how it could have more impact. And it came out of this background in education and writing. And over the course of a few years uh, at Penn Faulkner, which is a very small nonprofit, I ended up becoming the executive director. And so then I had this experience of running a nonprofit for five years. And during that time, I learned an enormous amount. It was an absolutely wonderful experience. And it was also a really challenging experience in a lot of ways, but it put me firmly in the world of books and of writers and of readers and of community building, whether it was in high schools uh, or Penn Faulkner gives national literary prizes and runs reading events throughout the DC area. And then was doing this work in DC schools. And then for a little while, uh, and then for a little while in Baltimore city schools. And so I'm doing all that work and discovering that what I really loved, I'd gotten an MFA in fiction. I was mm-hmm. working, I have several unfinished novels and I was writing a bit. And what I discovered is what made me feel most alive was the moments, the ways that books can be kind of the connective tissue within between people and help create community. Um, mm-hmm. I loved being in classrooms, watching students talk about books uh, and 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 watching them engage differently and then have a conversation with the author. I love the, especially sort of curating conversations on stage with authors, but then watching people afterwards talk about the experience they'd had listening to the authors. And the more I observed those dynamics in me, the more I realized what I really sought was a way to be embedded within the daily life of a community in a way that centered books um, as a tool for helping to kind of create and strengthen community and that mm. books for this could be this kind of catalytic force and I was living in DC and I liked DC but honestly I didn't love it and so I, I after I'd been there about eight years I thought you know what I should live somewhere I feel deeply attached to uh, where I feel like sort of really anchored in a sense of community and I'd grown up in Baltimore but I'd also lived in Louisiana for a while and loved it um, my siblings live uh, in various other places and I've I, you know, I was open to, uh, to to moving somewhere that I would care about in a different kind of way. When, lo and behold, the former owners of the Ivy Bookshop, uh, who I'd met through this educational program, just kind of suggested, you know, we want to retire and we think that you should buy the bookstore from us. And I sometimes say, you know, it, it was a very strange experience to have someone offer me the thing I didn't know I wanted. Um, mm. It took me about 15 minutes to get from Ed Berlin, who was a former owner saying, I think you should buy the bookstore from me and me saying, that's an insane idea. I can't buy a bookstore. (laughs) I've never worked in a bookstore. I've never run a small business. I don't have entrepreneurial aspirations. And it took me about 15 minutes to get to, oh my God, I (laughs) want to buy the bookstore from you. And I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Like you just, you just told me what my future is. And so what did he he say in those, what did he say in those 15 minutes? What he actually said in those 15 minutes is I said, I can't buy a bookstore from you. Like I was a public school teacher, aspiring writer and nonprofit administrator. Like I don't, I, I can't buy a business. And he was like, oh, like, do you own a house? And I was like, I do. And he was like, then I bet you can buy the IV from me. And, and that was, it was sort of the mechanistic thing, honestly, that allowed me to think beyond what I thought 
I was looking for, what I thought I was seeking. And I thought I was seeking a job. And, and since this is an entrepreneurial, you know, an entrepreneurship podcast, like I had a, a narrow understanding of what my options were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took someone just saying that and it sort of like shattered this like box I was in. And I thought, oh my God, what if I could own a business? And what if that's a little bit of what I've been seeking is a kind of autonomy to then pursue and respond to the things that I feel are of kind of deep value in the world and that energize me. Wow, that's really compelling. And, uh, you know, and I didn't, I didn't like sign on the dotted line 15 minutes later, but sure. not that long later, I, I, I took some time. I actually took a vacation a few weeks later, took a long train trip out West, stopped for a week in Wyoming by myself and really like, isol- I was like, I'm going to sit and think about this and stare at the mountains. Yeah. So that is how I became the owner of the Ivy Bookshop. I got back from that train trip and I said, yeah, I want to buy the store. And and how long ago was that? That was the summer of 2016. So it was seven years ago. Yeah. So you've been with the Ivy Bookshop through COVID, through a lot of ups and downs that have certainly been happening in the industry over the last seven, eight years, for sure. I love the space that you're in now, the Ivy Bookshop. And you you moved to that space, right? Within the last couple of years. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We moved into our new space in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, which for those who don't know is a, a the Ivy has existed since 20, 2001 and for the first 18 years was in the Lake Falls Village Shopping Center, which is a wonderful commercial space. We were just a few doors down from the extraordinary corner pantry, which I advocate everyone goes to all the time because they're just wonderful people and amazing food. Uh, I discovered actually one of my oldest, dearest friends loves to haunt real estate websites and discovered one morning in 2018 that a few blocks down the street, the same side of the same street, there was a meditation community church uh, that had occupied a 19th century mill house, um, had expanded it to include a sanctuary and sits on three acres of gardens and that it was up for sale. And she texted me uh, one morning, she at, at eight in the morning and she was like, I found it at 6.30, but that felt a little early <laughs> and said, you know, I think this would make a good bookshop. And from the moment I saw the property, I thought this, is it. This is like a unicorn. You don't, properties like this never come along. And three blocks down the street, same side of the same street. So I'll be essentially in the same neighborhood and have the capacity to own the property that we're in on every level. I was like, I will do anything to make this happen. Um, And so that was the summer of 2018. It took until 2019 to secure the purchase of the property. And then we began (laughs) Uh, we got our permits for renovation in February 2020, and so it was interesting timing, but we were able to move in in October of 2020, which is pretty incredible. One of the things that I love about that space is because it is in a house, mm-hmm. it feels like walking into somebody's house. I mean, you know you're walking into a bookstore, but like you mentioned earlier how you love like the connection and the community that is built around books and reading, yeah. and I probably even more broadly than that, you love it. and in the, walking into the Ivy Bookshop, this new, this newer space that you have, it feels like that, like you're, like someone's invited you into their home. And then the layout inside, it's very, it feels like a very old school bookstore. It's a great design um, that I don't feel like I see in bookstores too often anymore. What sort of, what part process did you go through to actually m- put together that particular layout within the, yeah, within the bookstore? Thanks. Thank you for saying that because you are describing the experience that we hope to create for people. I worked, for, the main thing I did was I worked with a gifted, artistic, wonderful architect. And I okay. discovered the value, I discovered what it is that a gifted architect can do, um, which is that they can 
to, well, my version of it is they can ask you how you want a space to make you feel or make a person feel. And they can figure out the sort of, again, the, the kind of mechanics that will create that. How is it that we move through spaces? And so his name's Doug Bothner. He works for Ziggers Need, uh, or he, he is at Ziggers Need, his partner there. And he's He's just a great guy and has a lot of, he's incredibly creative. And yeah, I remember in an essential way, one of our first conversations, he asked me that kind of, how do you want people to feel? And it is a bookstore in an old house. Do you want it to feel old? Do you want it to feel new? Um, mm -hmm. do you want how, how commercial do you want it to feel? How airy do you want it to feel? And then he sent me out to visit some bookshops in other places that are in old houses. And he said, just come back and tell me how it made you feel. And I did. And it was interesting to me because I went to bookstores that I really like and I came back realizing I didn't want it necessarily to feel like what I feel in bookstores. And I have felt at times in bookstores and old houses, specifically, I wanted to be very open, very airy, very light. I didn't want to pack things in. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have things recede to some extent, have the space recede. And what we really wanted to do was have people walk into a space and be surprised by how open and inviting, how it pulls you through. And that essentially all you see is books. You don't see the wood, you don't see sort of the walls. And so we washed, he had this insight. He said, let's wash everything out. There are these beautiful old 19th century wood floors and we want to retain them. And we want to mimic them where we have to, um, but let's whitewash it all and let's make the walls white and let's make the shelves white. And let's, just elevate the beauty of the aesthetic object that is a book. And let's also make it so that you can see through the space and you can see the length and entirety mm -hmm. of it. And because it situates on these on this really beautiful property and has these kind of sliver windows that were already there, your eye will be pulled to the books and then it'll be pulled to the green space beyond and it'll remind you that it's out there. And it just created this kind of graciousness and generosity of, of feeling in this very, very natural way. And one of the things we did was reduce the number of shelves that are in the space. And I think oh, interesting. In, you know, in a retail environment, often some of the metrics you look at are um, like how much shelf space can you get into a physical footprint? And mm -hmm. we decided we're gonna not try and optimize for linear square feet of shelving. Um, mm -hmm. We're gonna try and optimize for an aesthetic experience mm -hmm. and feel that through that we can kind of then curate a visual uh, presentation that will direct people towards kind of things they didn't know they wanted. And one of the benefits from that in the building that we're in is we also have a basement and a second level that aren't open to the public at the moment, though eventually the second level will be. And so we have a lot of opportunity for keeping excess stock on other levels. Um, so we can really sort of create that, that visual and kind of emotional experience on the first level while still having like all of the Dickens books upstairs. Yeah, but they don't yeah. have to be on the shelf on the first level. Yeah, I remember the one of the last times that I was there, I had picked up a book and I was just, you know, wandering through to see what else what the new releases were. And because of the way that, because of the layout, there was, I think there's some seating towards the back where there's a window. And it felt very much like, like a warm hand was like beckoning me, you know, like, hey, by the way, get that book. And then you can sit down and read it somewhere cozy. Like it was just all of those things all together. It was, it was a really great feeling. That is exactly what we, we hope to achieve. And we have little pockets of seating, but then also, oh, maybe you'll mm -hmm. take it outside and sit on the porch or on the patio, or we have a gazebo that we recently opened for people to yep. sit in the gardens. And so it's also that of kind of explore at your own pace and you can always find something new and surprising and a new place to, to sit and experience um, and talk with people or read. 
What has surprised you about the entrepreneurial life since this wasn't something you initially sought out and, you know, someone, not that he convinced you per se to, to pursue it, but the fact that somebody sort of presented it to you and you decided, hey, maybe this is what I want. Yeah. What has, yeah, no, what has no. surprised you about it? That's a great question in that I often, actually often say, like, I really love being a bookstore owner and I, but it isn't at all what I thought it would be. And mm. the, the surprise and delight has been that I love small business ownership. I thought of it very much as a way to, I knew I loved books and I, I wanted to center books in my life and I wanted to work with books, but I didn't think as much in advance about the mechanics of running a small business. And it's endless problem solving. As someone who, again, has sort of several unfinished novels, I, I liken it sometimes to live action novel writing. It's like, oh, interesting. There are all of these characters and there are all of these events and like, where's the plot going? And like, what's the through line? And so I, I really enjoy it, but you never quite know what you're going to tackle next. And I think that can feel really overwhelming, but it can also feel really enlivening and it can help you discover that there is a sort of infinite array of things that might crop up. And what you need to do is kind of, assess what question needs to be answered and figure out who might help you answer it. You don't have to know everything. Uh, you have to be comfortable asking for advice. And I think that that's a real discovery I've had. And it's been wildly empowering, uh, both in terms of doing things in the business, but just also in life. It's like, oh, you can't and shouldn't try to be an expert on everything. You should appreciate that there are a lot of experts out there. And that one of the things I think small business does is kind of connects you to this incredible universe of local kind of proximate. It, it connects you to your community in such like tactical fundamental ways. I mm -hmm. have found, I've fallen in love with that as a reality. I feel That's like cool. I, I have a community of people who can solve problems, who can solve the problems that I see out there. And it makes me actually feel more hopeful about the world, I think, than a lot of people I know, because there's a, there's a sort of um, an, a kind of agency embedded, collective agency embedded within that, that I think the world is really struggling with, which is that when things are happening at scale uh, and things are happening in a really optimized and efficient way, it hides, it's harder to see what a problem is and therefore it is harder to know how it should be fixed and it's harder to know who should fix it. And yeah. I think one of the pleasures for me of running a small bricks, uh, a, a bricks and mortar shop in a place I care about is learning about the world of people around me who have these remarkable competencies, um, which sort of the architecture thing is a great, yeah. now I understand what it is that architects do. And it makes me really appreciative. It's such a good point. The being so intentional and being aware of the fact that we don't need to solve all the problems ourselves. We are responsible, right? We are responsible for making sure that the problems get solved and prioritizing those problems in terms of what needs to be solved first but we don't need to be the answer to everything. And I think I think that's really hard for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's hard for me sometimes too, right? Yeah. It's easy to be like, I, I can figure this out, right? Like I'm independent, I'm strong, yeah. I can do this, but that's actually not often the best way. It's okay to ask for help, it's important. It's incredibly important to ask for help and it's a compliment to people when you ask them for help. And that that's something where I, I and again, I've learned that I didn't, it's not like I knew that. And part of it really was, honestly, when I found the building, it wasn't zoned commercially and it's all the properties in the floodplain. And I, oh, and I, and wow. I didn't have any money to buy it. Um, and so I really was like, unambiguously, I need to buy this building. I don't have any money. It's not a commercial property. And I don't know anything about floodplain management. So <laughs> all I know is I want the answer to be yes. And I am going to do everything I can to make that happen. And it's on a short timeline. And so I just sort of sat and thought like, 
who do I know who might know something about things associated with this, who might know, really the question I was trying to answer was, is this possible? And so I just started asking people and what I really learned, it was the building that kind of taught me that in a way that taught me it in a broader sense for the stores, which is I started asking people questions and they were really happy to give me answers because a lot of people have a lot of expertise. I love it when people ask me about books because I know a lot about books and it's fun for me to talk about them and I take joy in them. And that became true of contractors and of zoning experts and of people who work in the floodplain management office for Baltimore City. It turned out there was this wide universe of people who really care about very specific things. Um, we're currently dealing with a, you know, like a very unsexy Department of Public Works issue with the plumbing on our property and whether or not it's tied into the sewer system that was renovated in 1977. I mean, things I never thought I'd think about, but you discover people in the DPW office who like have this incredibly, this incredible in-depth understanding of something you've never bothered to think about. Um, and for me, I feel like that's part of what my path within entrepreneurship and maybe in part because I didn't come from it thinking what I want to do is necessarily own something or be in charge, but like, I, but I want this experience and this is my path towards it. And again, oh, I want the store to be occupied in that house. So I'm going to figure out how to do it. It made me so vulnerable from the start that my only recourse was to ask for help. And the more I did, the stronger I found relationships to be. And I realized like, wow, this is a, this is a really fruitful path. It's a really healthy path and it keeps reaping awards. You just develop relationships with people and they're members of your community, you know, and um, you get to keep knowing them. And, uh, and that's one of the things that, that I have found most valuable about this experience. If we were to shift over to, to writers. So you, you mentioned that you have a couple unfinished novels. So I'm curious, I'm a little bit curious if you if have an attention to publish any of them or are, is that sort of, something that you're like, oh, it's, it's okay that it's unfinished. That's, a, you know. Yeah, that's a there. good question. I, I've made my piece with it being unfinished. Okay. Oh, I've made my piece. I don't think a lot about publishing right now. Mm -hmm. To some extent, five about five years ago, four and a half years ago, I was still, when I first moved back, I actually, comically, the <laughs> there's sort of a punchline here, but like, I thought I was buying a bookshop and I, it was going to give me more time to write. And I, said, I know it's like laughter and it's like, what am I thinking again? I know that I was like being super detailed that I did my due diligence understanding what I was embarking on but uh so I was still trying to write and run the bookshop for the first kind of six months to a year and okay. about a year in I thought to myself like I need to go all in like yeah I can't have two simultaneous all-consuming creative pursuits and my mm -hmm. creative pursuit for the next stretch is the bookstore. And so I'm gonna redirect all of that energy. Um, and, and again, I'm gonna see it as a creative pursuit. I'm gonna see it as this, the same, the way my brain liked kind of figuring out questions of character in a novel, I sort of applied to the bookshop and the questions and the problem solving that arose. And, and I found it to be profoundly satisfying. Um, so some of that creative impulse I think has really been answered in entrepreneurship. That said, I recently was, I, my life, there was kind of five years of real entrepreneurial intensity and change and COVID and moving the store and burden hand and taking over the cafe side of burden hand, just a lot of kind of learning and adapting, obviously very informed by the pandemic. 2023 is starting to feel calmer in a really lovely way and mm. a wonderful staff at both locations. And I 
found myself with more time on my hands. So I've, you know, been going through some old notebooks um, and realized that I actually still really love the novel uh, that I left off uh, five years ago. Um, And I think I'm a different person now, so I'd have to kind of start it over, but I've begun to get back into writing. And I, what I've actually discovered is that I think transitionally, what I need to do is write about the bookstore. Oh, okay. I need to write about the last five years just to kind of get back into the rhythm of writing mm-hmm. and, and then may move back on to the novel. So that's what I'm actually working on right now. And I, and it's one, it's, it's very much a project where I don't know if it's catharsis or it's something that will ever be read, sort of writing it very much for myself. But I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a possibility that something public will emerge from it. And then once I do that, I think I'll probably go back into fiction. That's exciting though. Oh, it's very exciting actually. I'm like, oh wow, writing. Yeah. Like, I'm like, yeah. It's like I hadn't gone to the gym in five years. And I'm, the other night I was like up late. The only problem is I get really wired. And then it was like one in the morning. I was like, oh, that's what this does to me. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I find that with a lot of writers though. I mean, it's there are certainly people who are able to to build and keep up a writing practice on a continual basis for years and years and years. And that's wonderful. And they're often very prolific and they are able to get better and you know on, on a continual basis. But a lot of writers as well, they sort of leave it and come back to it and leave it and come back to it. And I think I think if it's a, in a, approached in the right way, I think that can also be beautiful because you, just like you said, we do grow, we change, we have life experiences that then change yeah. how we see the world, it changes how we write, and it's okay to have some space too. And I think, I think sometimes we need to take the shame away from that. Like I hear writers sometimes being like, oh, I wrote a book and then it's been sitting there for two years and I haven't done anything to it. And rather than feeling shame, like that's okay. Like live life, embrace yeah. life for all it is and then come back to it later. And yeah, and that's what's that, like, I think for me, and, and part of it is that I found a different professional avenue that I find deeply satisfying and yeah. engaging. And so it's like those pieces, I'm not trying to merge those two pieces, writing functions in a different way in my life. But also I, a, an old friend of mine has a novel coming out this fall that she worked on for 18 years. And I saw her for the first time since before COVID uh, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about it. And I'm, I'm reading the novel and it's really quite wonderful. And it, it takes place in part in the Yukon in the late 19th century. And it's, it's historical, but it's contemporary and it's called The Prospectors. People should read it when it comes out in the fall. But mm-hmm. I was talking to Ariel about it. And, you know, she was saying like, I worked on it for so long and eventually it's just like, I had to let it go. Like I had, there had to be an end to this project. And so it feels, and I, I found that so inspiring, both that she kept working on this project. This project was deeply embedded inside of her and she didn't feel like because she didn't finish it quickly enough, she needed to not keep working on it. And yet at some mm-hmm. point it was time to let go of it so she could move on to something else. Yeah. And I, it felt like a very, that felt, feels like a, an authentic process to me rather than feeling exactly a kind of shame or a sense of expectation that can come from the idea that something should be done in a set amount of time or kind of meet an external op, uh, expectation. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful about that. And, and also just that writing as a process for me is, is very much connected to reflection and also mm-hmm. again, connection. And so right now it's like, I'm dipping my toes back into the reflective process. And then I'm going to figure out kind of how that might connect to sharing to the connective process again. So for authors or for writers who are, let's say they're working on their first novel, maybe they're done with it um, or they're still working on it and, and they're 
beginning to build their audience. So let's say they haven't, they haven't necessarily, they don't have an agent yet, or they haven't signed a book deal, or maybe they're not quite ready to publish. What are some ways that you would suggest that writers begin to strengthen or like get to know their local bookstores? Because local bookstores are such a great resource and they're a great resource. It's a great way to plug into your community. Like you said, what are some things that writers could do to get to know their local bookstores? Yeah. Um, one is just frequent them and browse um, and chat with the staff. People, booksellers are just, it's just a wonderful universe of human beings. Um, it's people who care deeply about books, about talking about books, about reading, about thinking about the world. And you, if you work at an indie bookstore, you work there in large part to talk to people about the things that they're interested in. And so just going and chatting with the staff, asking them what they're reading, talking to them about what you're reading. We often order books that we aren't necessarily on our radar because customers come in and tell us like, oh, this is incredible, or this is my favorite book, or through conversations, we learn about things. And that's a very sincere uh, kind of exchange that really happens. Um, and then the second component is a lot of indie bookstores, not all, but most, I would say, host event series of some kind or events of some kind, and just going to those events. And again, just talking with the staff who's there, but talking with the other people who come to those events, especially if those events are series, if they happen every month or every season. Mm. So tonight, for instance, at the Ivy, um, we're hosting, it's called Charm City Spec, and it's a group of local speculative fiction writers who've been hosting a seasonal reading series um, at Burden Hand or the Ivy for, I, I want to say maybe six years at this point. I think oh, it's wow. started right around the time I actually became a part of the Ivy. And it happens once every season and a lot of the same people come. So it just feels like a really social, it's, an, it's a sort of a public access, open access, social experience anchored by books, which means that there's always a third thing connecting you to other people that you can talk about. Um, and I think, especially for writers, especially, you know, if you are aspiring to be published, if you come to events like that, you will find a really receptive community of people who want to talk to you both about what you're reading, but also will potentially have kind of advice to give or sort of a community to welcome you into that knows a lot about the publishing process. And you don't want to do it in necessarily in an extractive way. Like you don't want to be there, not that any, but it, you know, it's not that like, there's a thing you should say, really just like show up and be yourself and get mm -hmm. to know people. And mm -hmm. those people will then want to kind of like help you and advocate on your behalf and read your work and, and all of those things simply because they care about books and they care about other people who care about books. No, and that's a great note because it's, I, I do sometimes see um, see authors who they, they wait until the book is basically done before they start doing sort of that outreach and plugging into the local yep. community. And, and usually they have some sort of network, right? I mean, they have people, of course, in their life who like love to read and, and whatnot, but the importance of, of doing that much earlier, just because you're building a community like anything else. And then yeah. because you are, I mean, even as a writer, in a sense, you're a little bit of your own entrepreneur, right? You're creating a, a piece of work and you're going to put it out into the world and you're going to be responsible ultimately for selling it. And so just like an entrepreneur, it's important to just to get out into your community and build relationships and get to know people. And that's in the end, like it's about relationships and it's about the authenticity of those relationships. And that that's where sometimes there's a sense of like, well, how should I present this? I was recently having a conversation with someone I'm friendly with who has a book and it, but that isn't going to have a ton of publicity support. And they were saying kind of like, what should I say to independent bookstores in other places? And I was saying like, 
I don't know that the particularity of what you write in the email matters. The question is, do you know someone who works at that bookstore? Do you know anyone in that local community? Can you, can you contextualize why that store should carry your book or they should host an event for you? Um, because the, the tactical thing of the book being on the shelf or, or an event existing in the world isn't necessarily going to be catalytic, right? It's, it's whether or not people notice and whether or not people care and whether or not people advocate. And some of that is the quality of the text, but also we live in a world with a lot of books. Like, and one of the realities of being, a, you know, I often say the hardest thing about, or the thing I've had to come to terms with about being a bookstore owner is recognizing the enormous universe of books I wish I could read that I'll never read. It is inspiring how many people spend enormous amounts of time alone wrestling with really essential questions in both fiction and nonfiction and produce things that are absolutely worth our time and attention. And we don't have infinite time and attention. And one of the beautiful things I think about a bookstore is at least you can like see it all. <laughs> you can you can recognize mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. it feels really inspiring in part because for all of the reasons to be scared about the world, I think there's just this engine of human belief and engagement and hope that you can see actually sort of arrayed around you when you can see all of those books, which mm -hmm. again gets back to some of that like aesthetic and emotional context where we wanted to build like a sanctuary for books, essentially, where we are celebrating this, their simple existence yeah. and we are recognizing that you will never read them all. But all of that is to say, just if you have a book coming out into the world, you're really focused on it. But the question is, why should anybody else focus on it? And it's not the only book coming out into the world. And it's not the only book worth paying attention to. And I would know that and say that about my own book. I would be really mm -hmm. in love with my own book, but why yeah. should anybody else be in love with my book? And one of the reasons that people open the pages of any book is they know the person, they believe in the person, they know the context, the person lives in their community. Um, and that's one of those sort of just truths about life and what it is to relate to other humans that has an application there, which is if you really love books broadly, then be around other people who love them. And as a, there's a correlative thing that will happen, which is those people will care when your book comes out to the world. What does your curating process look like for books that you are going to put out on the shelf at the Ivy? And I, I say that I, I you you do um, you have a practice where your staff will write little little blurbs about mm -hmm. the books and they'll talk about the ones that they really liked and why they liked it. And one of the things that I also love about walking into a bookstore like the Ivy is I I like that there's a curation process, right? Because there are so many books in the world, and yes, sometimes I will go looking for a book because I know the author or I'm looking for a particular you know, genre or something that's new in a particular area, but that I, I like walking into bookstores where people who care about books have said, this one's really good. Like that's a very much a value add. And so what does yeah. your curation process look like? Yeah, it's very collaborative and it's very, it's sort of open and porous intentionally. But um, the, the first step of the curatorial process for the shops is what's called front list buying. So ahead of books coming up for publication. So maybe three to six months in advance, um, the shop decides what we'll buy and bring in. And I do that for adult literature, uh, fiction, nonfiction, poetry. Um, and then we have a children's buyer, a wonderful woman named Rona, who um, who does the buying as well for children's books. When those books come into the shop then on their sort of publication cycle, uh, this is sort of when the operational architecture of the shop and, and the way that the staff collaborates, they come in, they're received and wait for their pub day. And then on their pub day, the folks who are doing the shelving, and there's a wonderful guy who sort of is, is uh, does a lot of the orchestration of that named Neil, 
um, they come up and it's like, where are we gonna place these books? And the number of books that we've purchased indicates certain things, but then it really becomes this kind of subjective process of where does he think that book belongs in the store? How interesting is it? Has anyone read it? Is somebody gonna advocate on its behalf? Um, and so there's that sort of first array process, but it's any, everyone in the shop can place any book wherever they want. It is not scripted at the IV. Only thing that it, that is controlled is the initial purchase number. And if it's purchased in certain quantities, four or six or 12, it indicates where the universe of where it should go. But people then have the ability to say like, this book is more interesting than that book. And so I'm gonna prioritize the placement of this. Um, and then beyond that, any book that anybody reads, um, whether or not we've ordered it, they can order into the shop. And they're encouraged to then write a shelf talker as to why. And we have this ever expanding universe of hundreds and hundreds of, of shelf talkers, handwritten. I love the handwritten part because it also gives you some insight into sort of personality of the person. They go up around and that's sort of another aesthetic element that humanizes the space. But again, there's no quantity that any people are just encouraged to do as many as they want. And if there's a shelf talker, then we will again order those books in quantity. We do that for new books, but we also do it. One of the things I think that's somewhat distinctive about the ideas, we really do it for backlist books. So you'll find mm. books that are pulled out on our like staff picks that were written in 1923 or 1957 or 1973. Like there's mm -hmm. no sense of, there's a certain prioritization that's naturally going to happen in the, in the sort of retail rhythm of new books coming in and it's pub day and we're excited for them in the world. But we also really want to exalt and elevate old books and suggest to people, you should be reading things that were written in the 19th century. And you should be reading these like books you've never heard of from the 1930s. And we have certain booksellers where like, that's really what they love to read. And it's really exciting because I'm like, no, I've never heard of that Polish writer writing in the 19 teens. And I should have, like, I'm now I'm curious about that world and that universe. But it's this very collaborative collective process where the, the engine of it is genuinely just like, enthusiasm essentially if someone is enthusiastic on behalf of a book that book will be ordered in quantity and will go out into the world in quantity and there's there's a real like excitement and enthusiasm about that um within the staff collectively and it just kind of like builds um and you know and sometimes there'll be these sort of funny like not real competitions but it'll be like oh like we sold 17 copies of you know book x by so and so that shelf talker really moved and other nice. people are like oh i i'm gonna sell 17 copies of a an unknown brazilian novelist from the 1950s like, <laughs> it's like a pretty charming and healthy kind of competition to have in the world i think you have you have a subscription type service at the ivy right is that correct can you talk a little bit about what that is and how that's available to folks yeah, um, and it's very much connected to a lot of the stuff we've talked about, unsurprisingly, but um, we have a subscription service and you could see, sign up and it's a monthly shipment that'll go out um, to people's homes. Uh, a lot of people buy it as gifts for, um, and it started, for us, it started with children's books. Uh, and so as sort of a, a really nice gift you can give. A lot of grandparents give it to grandchildren who live elsewhere. Uh, and then the grandparent would like buy a copy of a book and the book would be delivered to their child, uh, to their grandchild, and they would like read it simultaneously. But we then expanded that out and we now have it. It's essentially personal shopping. We actually started it thinking, oh, we would, we would have individual, we would have a monthly selection. And then we realized like the pleasure of an independent bookstore is that personal recommendation. And so now when you sign up, you tell us some things about the person that you're sending the books to. And at any time you can update with other information uh, and you can tell us the books they've loved. And then we have individual booksellers who are assigned 
those files and they just go around once a month and pick a book that they think connects to the other books the person has read and any feedback we've gotten about it. And it's really fun for the booksellers to do that. It's just sort of personal shopping. Um, and we find it's it's grown over time that people really enjoy it. And it's a really wonderful book to give, a, a gift to give. And yeah. you can choose to do it for three months, six months, 12 months a year. Um, but we have some folks at this point who've been giving it as a gift to the same person for years at this point. And so yeah. a surprise shows up every month on their doorstep. Well, and it's also, it's it's going back to building that connection, right? I mean, I thought, th think about the story you had, you told at the beginning about you and your parents and the, those memories yeah. that you still have. And I mean, this ordering a subscription like this for a child or a grandchild would be such a great way to be able to build some of those memories yourself with the kids in your life. I love yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, there's one, um, one woman I spoke to at one point who had like similarly aged grandchildren in different cities, and she got them identical subscriptions and asked that they always be sent the same book. And nice. then she gets a copy of it and then they all read it together. And uh -huh. I just thought like that is the perfect, that is an exemplar use of this program because it is, it's that, it's that sense of what I want is to connect with other humans around something I love to do and, mm -hmm. and objects I love. And I, and also they're building this library and then they're going to have this shared conversation that can, can pass over time. And again, one day they'll be on a podcast and be like, what was your formative experience with books? And yep. these cousins will be able to say, it was our grandma I would give us the same book. And then we'd all talk on the phone about it. And that's a pretty yep. wonderful thing. Well, Emma, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing about your journey and sharing about the Ivy and everything related to that. Um, if folks want to find the Ivy online, where should they go? Uh, they should go to www.theivybookshop.com. Um, and we were actually about to launch a, a revised and beautiful new version of that site in July. So check back. Beautiful. Then. Okay. All right. So we'll stay tuned for that. Well, thank you again, Emma. I really appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing to support authors and just the local community in Baltimore. Ivy is a great space. And um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for thank being you here. So much, I really appreciate you inviting me on and, and thanks for running a great podcast. Mm -hmm.